You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 54, The New Covenant. Thanks for joining me. We last left the narrative in November of 1799. The coup of 18 Brumaire swept away the Directory, which had ruled France for four years, and installed a new regime known as the Consulate. Napoleon Bonaparte was now First Consul of France, the top position in the new government. But that didn't mean he ruled as a dictator. Not yet. This was a provisional government, a temporary caretaker regime, intended only to maintain order until a new constitution was put into place. As the dust of the coup settled and the government began consolidating and paving the way for a new permanent government, each member of the Brumaire conspiracy was angling to secure his own share of power in the new order. However, as we've seen in past episodes, Napoleon was rarely content sharing power with anyone. He preferred to do things by himself his own way, and chafed under any outside oversight or restraint. As first consul, Napoleon was in a better position than anyone to dominate the new government, but he would have to win this round of post-coup infighting if he was to maximize his influence. As it turned out, the future form of this new government was much more open to debate than anyone had realized. Not long after the coup, one of the plotters asked its leader, Emmanuel Siez, about this new constitution. Amazingly, Siez responded that he, quote, had a few ideas, end quote. A few ideas. We can only imagine how stunned his comrades must have been at this casual admission. The great political thinker who had just led the coup with the stated purpose of reforming the Constitution had never actually taken the time to synthesize his ideas into a draft Constitution. C.S. had sold himself as a constitutional expert to anyone who would listen. It had been the signature issue of his relaunched political career. Nearly everyone had assumed all his talk of reform referred to an actual physical document, locked away in his study, not a purely theoretical object which existed only in Siez's thoughts as a vague conglomeration of ideas and promises to his fellow conspirators. It's hard to see this state of affairs as anything other than a stunning act of political incompetence. The main thing Siez brought to the table as leader of his faction was his reputation as a political theorist, and yet he abdicated the most important task in his field of expertise. We know he worried about losing control of the new regime, particularly to Bonaparte, and yet he simply surrendered this golden opportunity to shape the new government. 
As I've said before, whatever his other talents, Siez was simply not up to the task of serving as a major national political leader. And so, instead of presenting his fellow conspirators with a fait accompli, C.S. now set about drafting the consular constitution, overseen by a committee of 50 loyal politicians. This meant the document was susceptible to influence by the very people whose power C.S. was hoping to limit, including Bonaparte. C.S. had been wary of Napoleon from the very beginning, and since the coup, Their relationship had only deteriorated, as Bonaparte demanded more and more power for the position of first consul. We've seen Napoleon's negotiating style in past episodes. He was absolutely relentless and unyielding when it came to his core demands, but could shift in an instant to generous accommodation. As they worked on the Constitution, Siez and the committee got some serious doses of Napoleon's infamous temper, but he had learned to master it, and deploy it judiciously, only when necessary to achieve his ends, like a cavalry charge on the battlefield. He was just as capable of fading into the background, or turning on the charm and making himself into the center of positive attention. Bonaparte also made good use of the fact that he was much younger and infinitely more energetic than the timid, aging politicians on the committee. When all else failed, he could draw out the proceedings until anyone who opposed his proposals was too tired to resist. Using these tactics, Napoleon was able to concentrate more and more power in the position of first consul. At one point, an exasperated Siez asked him, quote, So, do you want to be king? End quote. He was being facetious, but with the form the new regime was taking, he might have asked it in earnest. After a few weeks of work, the draft constitution was highly authoritarian. There would be no real checks on the power of the executive branch, which would be almost entirely dominated by the position of first consul, which everyone knew was already earmarked for Napoleon. He would have nearly complete control over foreign policy, national security, and the military, and the right to appoint and dismiss government officials, from the ministers on down. He would also be responsible for promulgating and enforcing the decrees of the legislature. This is pretty standard stuff, not unlike many other democratic-republican systems with strong executives, like the American presidency. The key difference is that under the French consulate, these powers would be wielded without any oversight from the legislature. In his areas of authority, First Consul Bonaparte would have complete freedom of action. His decisions were not subject to confirmation by legislative vote, and he would have the power to fund his own projects directly from government revenues, independent of allocations from the legislature. He would also have the right to introduce legislation of his own. There was not even the pretense of checks and balances between the branches of government. The executive would rule supreme. Not only would the executive be uniquely powerful, the legislature would be uniquely weak. Most notably, the lower house would be divided into two chambers. The tribunate would have the power to officially debate proposed legislation, but no power to actually pass laws. The legislative corps would vote on laws, but had no official mechanism to debate them. It's hard to think of any practical reason for this bizarre, unwieldy system other than to deliberately reduce the power of the legislative branch. Unlike most contemporary monarchs, the first consul would be restrained by the law and the constitution, and subject to the will of the people, all adult male citizens, not just the gentry or aristocracy. And unlike a king or queen, consuls would have limited terms of office, albeit very long ones at ten years. 
That said, the type of untrammeled authority wielded by the first consul was not very republican, much more reminiscent of kingly rule. A lot of the trappings of monarchy would soon be back as well, fancy uniforms, liveried attendants, and ritualized ceremonies of state. As the new constitution was being finalized, Bonaparte had already moved into apartments in the Luxembourg Palace, a former royal residence. As we saw when Napoleon ruled northern Italy as a kind of unofficial monarch, he understood how this type of pomp and circumstance could be useful as a way of building legitimacy. He certainly operated that way in Egypt as well, trying to cultivate the image of a traditional Middle Eastern ruler rather than relying on simple republican virtue. You might fairly call the consulate a hybrid between republicanism and monarchism. The first consul would be kind of like a king for people who despised the very idea of kings, presiding over a democratic system designed by people who had grown weary of democracy. It took just under a month to finalize the new constitution. Pretty quick, even with Napoleon's stalling tactics. By contrast, the U.S. Constitution had taken over a year to draft and ratify. There's a quotation you often see presented alongside the consulate constitution. Quote, A good constitution is short and obscure. End quote. This is often attributed to Napoleon, but in fact it was Talleyrand who said it, and he was talking about the constitution of the Cisalpine Republic, not the French constitution. But the quote is often used in this context because it really does seem to fit the consulate constitution. The document is quite short. There is no preamble and no Bill of Rights. It's simply a bare-bones description of the structure and workings of the new regime, devoid of any lofty rhetoric or philosophical ideas. This was a document produced by exhausted, cynical men, not idealists, and it shows. You might think that with a new constitution, new elections must have been right around the corner, or at the very least, a referendum to secure the support of the people. But the plotters of Brumaire decided to go in a different and less democratic direction. The first government under the new constitution would be selected by the Constitutional Committee. Now, they weren't choosing these people out of thin air. The new legislature would be composed of members of the previous legislature, who had been elected relatively fairly. However, only representatives who were reasonably loyal to the new regime would be chosen. On December 12, 1799, the committee held its last meeting. Bonaparte hosted at his new apartments in the Luxembourg Palace. He played it quiet this time, standing alone by the fire, seemingly aloof, listening while the politicians hammered out the last few details. Finally, late in the night, not long before midnight, it came time for the last and most important business of the day, the selection of the three consuls. Each member of the committee would write his three choices on a slip of paper. Of course, this momentous decision had not been left to an open vote. Those in power had already settled this question among themselves, through exhaustive debate and hard-nosed negotiation. The committee had been informed of the results of these negotiations, and everyone in the room knew they were expected to merely place their stamp of approval on this pre-existing agreement, rather than voting their conscience. Still, this mostly symbolic act was observed with great solemnity. The chamber fell silent as each man scribbled his choices and then rose to place his ballot in a large container at the front of the room. Once this little sham election was complete, Napoleon seemed to finally wake up from his meditation by the fire and turned to address the room. Quote, Instead of counting these, let us give a new token of gratitude to Citizen Siez, 
by granting him the right to designate the first three public officers of the Republic, and agree that those he designates would have been the same as we have just nominated. End quote. Now, as I mentioned before, there was no real doubt as to the outcome of this vote. So, what exactly was Napoleon doing? Why did he want his appointment as first consul confirmed orally by Sies, rather than by a vote of the committee? I think while he was pretending to honor Sies, Napoleon was actually attempting to shore up his own position and neutralize one of his most significant rivals. Bonaparte was new to politics, but it seems like he had already mastered the politician's art of delivering a stab in the back with a smile. Now Sies was put on the spot. He had no choice but to simply confirm the pre-existing deal and name Bonaparte first consul. By thrusting him into this position, Napoleon was forcing him to give his stamp of approval to the incoming Bonaparte administration. Sies wouldn't have any formal power in the new government, but Napoleon maneuvered him into giving it his blessing anyway. Now, if Sies gave first consul Bonaparte any trouble, the first thing anyone would say is, hey, weren't you the one who chose him to lead the government? It was a poison pill, but Sies had no choice but to swallow it. He stood up before the assembled politicians and named Napoleon Bonaparte first consul of France. Napoleon's deputies would be second consul Jean-Jacques Régis de Cambacérès and third consul Charles-François Lebrun. These were relatively powerless positions compared to the first consul, but they would be players in the new government, and their identities can tell us a lot about the priorities of the consulate and the image it was trying to project to the public. Cambacérès was 46 years old, born into the minor nobility, and an intellectual at heart. He had dabbled in philosophy, politics, and literature before finally settling on the law. He was a liberal, and when the revolution came, Cambacérès eagerly joined in. He was elected as an alternate to the Estates General in 1789, then became a delegate to the new National Convention in 1792, and had been part of every revolutionary parliament since. Through all the ideological twists and turns of the 1790s, Cambacérès had remained relatively consistent. He was a moderate liberal, supportive of all the core aims of the revolution, but never willing to go quite as far as some of his colleagues to see them realized. For example, he voted to convict the former king, Louis XVI, of treason, but also worked unsuccessfully to see his sentence commuted. He didn't have much of a public profile. Cambacérès spoke with a stutter, which limited his abilities as an orator, although many of his contemporaries describe him as charming in more intimate settings. Instead, he was a behind-the-scenes operator. He managed to carve out a particular niche as a legal expert, which was no small achievement in a body in which lawyer was the single most common profession. Combined with his ideological moderation and accommodating nature, this expertise surely helped Cambacérès survive the never-ending succession of purges. Whatever faction was in charge, they would need someone who understood the legal system. Apparently, Napoleon decided he did too. The third consul would be 60-year-old Charles-François Lebrun. Lebrun was also a trained lawyer, although he'd made his career in the civil service. He'd actually risen to a relatively high position in the king's household staff before 1789, but his zeal for liberal ideas drew him into revolutionary politics, despite his loyalty to King Louis. These two sides of Lebrun were always in tension. He was a constitutional monarchist at heart, who wanted a system of government in which his Enlightenment liberal ideals could coexist with more traditional structures of power. 
But events had moved in a different direction, and men like Lebrun had to choose between the revolution and the king. Lebrun ultimately chose his liberal beliefs, but only reluctantly. From his position in Parliament, he argued against the execution of Louis and the abolition of the monarchy. But when his colleagues voted to send his former master to the guillotine and found a republic, Lebrun continued to serve the revolution rather than joining the émigrés. In the grand scheme of 18th century European politics, we'd probably classify Lebrun as a moderate liberal, but among his fellow revolutionaries, this brand of centrist constitutional monarchism put him solidly on the right, a position which nearly cost him his life during the terror. Like Cambaceres, Lebrun's survival is probably partially explained by his unique expertise. Before the revolution, he had been one of the senior managers of the king's vast personal estates, which were one of the kingdom's chief sources of revenue. This meant he understood finance and budgeting better than almost anyone in the legislature. I'm sure I don't need to remind you how desperate the Republican government was for cash, and what a central role the state finances played in the events of the revolution. Lebrun's knowledge in this field was indispensable, even to those who harbored doubts about his commitment to the cause. The appointment of these two men tells us a lot about the priorities of Napoleon's new government. If they were around today, we'd probably call Lebrun and Cambaceres technocrats. They didn't have any popular base to speak of, and owed their careers in politics not to charisma or ideological rigor, but to their fluency in the obscure intricacies of public policy. As we know, Napoleon put a great premium on competence. The ineptitude of the old regime was a large part of what had driven him into the revolutionary camp. Now that he was in charge, one of his top priorities would be ensuring the country was governed well, and he wanted men by his side who could help him do that. It also probably helped that these bland technocrats had no real popular base of their own, and thus would be unlikely and unable to challenge Napoleon's power. Throughout their careers, both men had preferred keeping their heads down and limiting themselves to working behind the scenes in their own areas of expertise, rather than making plays for national power. Napoleon could trust that they would probably stay compliant, and that he could beat them if they didn't. Neither man was terribly ideological, but their respective political positions are also significant. One Republican from the moderate left, and one constitutional monarchist from the moderate right. As we've already seen, Napoleon wanted to reconcile the new regime to both sides of the political spectrum. By picking a liberal and a conservative as his deputies, he gave both sides something to celebrate, and as moderates, neither man would be too controversial with the other side. As for his own political alignment, Napoleon had begun to conceive of himself as something more than a mere partisan figure, and his propagandists were already working overtime to sell this image to the French people. As First Consul, he envisioned himself transcending faction and ideology, as a unifying figure who represented the entire nation, whoever they were and whatever they believed. In Napoleon's own words, quote, I espouse no party but the masses. My policy is the complete fusion of the whole people. End quote. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit makes these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. 
Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the super light tree runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a super light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. To fill out the rest of the government, Napoleon appointed Charles-Maurice de Talleyrand as his foreign minister, who had served in this office under past revolutionary governments, and had collaborated with Bonaparte in planning the expedition to Egypt. Nobody trusted Talleyrand, but there was no question that he was very effective. He'd also been instrumental in planning and executing the coup of Brumaire, and it seems this was his reward. The unsavory Joseph Fouché would stay on as Minister of Police. Fouché was an oily character, almost universally despised for his gossip-mongering, brutality, and corruption. But the very qualities that made him so loathsome and sinister also made him efficient at the amoral cloak-and-dagger duties of a secret police chief. Furthermore, Fouché had so many connections and knew so many secrets that it was wiser to keep him as a friend than challenge his power and make a dangerous enemy. For Minister of Justice, Napoleon picked someone much more dependably loyal, his brother Lucien, who had certainly earned a little recognition for his role in saving the coup. As we'll soon see, Napoleon had a very sensitive task planned for the Minister of Justice, so it was important this office be held by someone he could trust absolutely. Finally, the new Minister of War would be Lazare Carnot, the famous military theorist who had served in this position under every revolutionary government, and had proven so capable that he'd earned the nickname the Organizer of Victory. When we last saw Carnot, he had been a member of the Directory, but had ended up on the wrong side of a coup in 1797, and fled Paris just ahead of Fouché's police. He had spent the intervening years in Switzerland, where he kept himself busy writing essays on mathematics. Carnot had been one of the first to recognize Napoleon's potential, but as a staunch Republican, he was uneasy with the new regime, but Bonaparte appealed to his sense of duty, and Carnot could not refuse. And so, within the first few weeks of the 19th century, France had a functioning constitutional government once again. But just how legitimate was this new constitution? It had been imposed on the country by a handful of politicians, selected for their pre-existing loyalty to the project, not because they represented the country in any meaningful sense. What happened to all of Napoleon's populist rhetoric about representing the masses? Well, the people would have their say, but on the government's terms. There would be a referendum on the new constitution, but only after the document had already been ratified by the committee and put into effect. It would be a simple yes or no proposition. The people of France could either vote to confirm the already existing government, or scrap the constitution and force the politicians to craft a new one. The government clearly wanted the referendum to pass, and framing the question this way made that much more likely. By waiting to hold the vote until after the Constitution was already in place, the public would not be choosing between two hypotheticals, but between an existing, tangible state of affairs with yes and uncertainty with no. However people felt about the new Constitution, there could be no question that the government was firmly in charge and governing reasonably effectively. 
even if they had doubts about the new regime, every voter had experienced the civil conflicts of the mid-1790s and knew how much worse things could be. There were still bands of royalist rebels active in many parts of the country. There were still rumors of radical Jacobin plots in the cities. The specter of anarchy and civil war was never far from anyone's thoughts. The government was able to pose the referendum as a contest between certainty and uncertainty, between order and the potential for chaos. We've seen Napoleon use this trick before during his time in northern Italy, in Genoa. The referendum was held in stages by region over the course of about a month between late December and January, under the principle of universal adult male suffrage. Not very democratic by modern standards, but quite progressive for the time. Only a few jurisdictions in Britain and the U.S. allowed poor men to vote, and in the U.S. there were obviously racial restrictions as well. Only the American state of New Jersey allowed women to vote, and they would soon lose that right. Turnout in the constitutional referendum was pretty poor. Somewhere between one-quarter and one-third of eligible voters chose to cast a ballot. Still, that was actually an improvement over the dismal turnout in the directory elections, which had been lower by about half, and out of a much more restricted electorate. There was no secret ballot. Each voter was handed a master list of the voters in his jurisdiction, and he would find his name and record his vote in the blank space next to it. He would be able to see the vote of everyone in his region who had gone before, and the government officials making the counts would know exactly how every man in France voted. Under the circumstances, I think it's very easy to see how people might have felt pressured to support the government, or to stay away from the polls and keep their opposition to the Constitution off the record. So it's safe to say the government had both thumbs firmly on the scale for this supposedly democratic referendum. Predictably, as the Ministry of Justice began tabulating the votes, the preliminary results were quite favorable for the yes side. Most opponents of the new constitution hadn't bothered to show up for what was obviously a foregone conclusion. And let's not forget, there really was some organic enthusiasm for the new government. Bonaparte was genuinely popular, and many of the multitudes of Frenchmen who were sick of upheaval and disillusioned with politics saw the new regime as a chance to restore some stability. Interestingly, the referendum gave citizens the option of writing a short message explaining their vote and many did. It's hard to imagine that people would go to this extra step if they were coerced. However, the results were not what the government had been hoping for. True, the yes side had won handily, but with turnout hovering around 30%, even a landslide victory didn't look like much of a mandate. And so, even after this rigged vote, Minister of Justice Lucien Bonaparte began padding the totals. First, he counted every Republican soldier as a yes vote. There had been no polling stations at the front, but it was decided that the army's duty was to support the government, and Lucien took the liberty of helping the soldiers fulfill this obligation. In effect, the Ministry of Justice pulled half a million votes out of thin air and added them to the yes column. That's some pretty serious fraud, given that only about 1.5 million Frenchmen had actually voted. But even that wasn't enough for the consulate's mandate. Bureaucrats at the Ministry of Justice also tampered with local returns, fabricating somewhere around a million more yes votes. There's no hard proof that Napoleon himself was involved in this fraud, but given that his own brother was the one calling the shots, 
it's hard to imagine he wasn't at least aware of what was going on. The results were announced in early February. 3,011,007 yes votes, and 1,562 no votes, a whopping 99.94% in favor of the new constitution. To put that in perspective, that's exactly the same margin of victory claimed by Saddam Hussein in the Iraqi presidential election of 1995. I find it interesting that the government felt the need to engage in fraud on this scale. The combination of rigging and genuine popular support had ensured a landslide victory even before the first vote was cast. Lucian knew the referendum was won before he decided to include the army and add those million phony yes votes from the provinces. But it's hard to claim a landslide mandate from only 30% of the electorate. Bonaparte wanted to demonstrate that all Frenchmen of every background and belief were united behind the new regime that this was a truly representative national government, not a factional regime imposed upon the country by a narrow clique of politicians, like previous revolutionary governments. Apparently, someone at or near the top decided that three million yes votes was the threshold necessary to project that image, and so the Ministry of Justice delivered that number. The referendum was an ugly business. The lopsided margin of victory certainly raised a few eyebrows, But fraud was not definitively proven until the 20th century. The Constitution was approved, and Bonaparte could claim his mandate. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. As I mentioned before, unlike most similar documents, the consulate constitution lacked a preamble. A preamble is like an introduction, which usually includes some statement of purpose and lays out the philosophical and moral foundations of the system of government. If you're American, you're probably familiar with the preamble of the U.S. Constitution, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, etc. The new consulate regime was not consecrated with any such grand words or big ideas. However, not long after Brumaire, the remaining pro-coup members of the legislature commissioned a document to explain the reasons behind their faction's seizure of power and lay out what they hoped to achieve with the new constitution, which was then being finalized. In typical long-winded 18th century fashion, this report was called, quote, Some Considerations on Social Organization, in general and in particular regard to the new constitution, end quote. Pierre Cabanis was selected to write it. He was an eminent scientist who dabbled in philosophy and poetry, and was a member of the Council of 500. This document has been mostly overlooked by posterity, but it's as close as we have to an official statement of principle by the man who crafted the new constitution. Most historians barely mention it, if at all, and as far as I know, it has never been translated into English. So, this is a Little Age of Napoleon exclusive. I'd like to read the conclusion of Cabanis's essay in its entirety. Quote, a revolution is only truly completed when the traces of its various commotions, and even the names of the different parties, no longer exist. It is ended only when all those who have taken part in its successive movements 
are finally united by their common sentiments as a band of brothers, and swear on the Book of the New Covenant to forget their errors and their mutual resentments. The government must signal this generous forgetting as soon as possible. Unfortunately, the internal state of the Republic demands that such an act be done carefully and only at the right moment. It must bring in individuals, not parties. Public opinion, so fickle and so fleeting, must no longer be the instrument of endless agitations and reactions. The spirit of exclusion and vengeance is found in all parties. Henceforth, the Republic must no longer be the prey, and I might say, the weapon of a few. It must be the preserve and the sanctuary of all Frenchmen. End quote. Now, as with any primary source document, we can't simply take this at face value. It's always important to keep in mind whose words we're reading, what their intended audience was, and what their biases might have been. So this document might not be a complete account of all the reasons behind the coup, but it shows how the plotters wanted to present their case to the public. If I had to sum up that argument in just one word, it would be unity. Cabanis emphasizes this theme so strongly, it almost comes off as desperate or hysterical. Clearly, he blamed most, if not all, of France's political problems on factionalism and demagoguery. Knowing what we do about the course of the revolution, it's easy to see how someone who had lived through it might come to that conclusion, although personally I disagree with his analysis. The vicious factional infighting of this period was a symptom of deeper problems, not the root of them. But, however you want to classify this problem of factionalism, there was no disputing that it had been incredibly destructive. This is what Cabanis and men like him were talking about when they spoke of ending the revolution. These were not reactionaries who wanted to return to the pre-Republican status quo. They still supported almost all of the core ideals of the revolution, but simply wanted off the never-ending carousel of coups and repressions, and believed that could only be achieved under an authoritarian government of national unity with a strong executive. When he writes of ending the revolution, Cabanis is speaking of the revolution as a state of political affairs in which power is up for grabs and the fundamental underlying principles of the state are open to debate. But if we think of the revolution in terms of Enlightenment Republican values, the sentiments which were common to all those who had taken part in the revolution, as Cabanis put it, the new government was clearly seeking to entrench those principles, turn them into a new status quo which the whole country could accept make them the preserve and sanctuary of all Frenchmen, to borrow Cabanis's words. These principles would include things like constitutional government, popular sovereignty, meritocracy, equality before the law, and rational administration. Interestingly, Pierre Cabanis would soon part ways with his comrades. As you can see from the quoted passage, he had a pretty similar ideological outlook to Napoleon, However, when the text of the new constitution came out only a few days after this essay, he was unhappy with the extreme concentration of power in the hands of the first consul. Cabanis wanted a strong government to initiate the process of national reconciliation around a moderate republican regime, but he was deeply uneasy with Napoleon's idea that the person of the first consul himself should act as the rallying point and symbol of national consensus. After the new constitution went into effect, Bonaparte made overtures to Cabanis, inviting him to join the new legislature, but was rebuffed. Cabanis walked away from politics, never to return. He devoted the rest of his life to his scientific and medical theories, 
His writing would help lay the groundwork for Charles Darwin's theory of the origin of species half a century later. However well-founded they may have been, the objections of men like Cabanis didn't count for much. The new constitution went into effect, and it was Bonaparte who held all the power. The consulate regime would only last about four years until it was replaced by the empire, roughly as long as the directory had survived before. However, the government organized under this constitution would remain the template for Napoleonic rule all the way up until 1815. There would be a lot of additions and revisions in the years to come, but the basic underlying structure will remain the same for the rest of our story. Perhaps more importantly, the philosophical underpinnings of the regime will also remain more or less the same. The fear of anarchy and disdain for factionalism, the goal of entrenching the ideals of the revolution while also maintaining stability, and the idea of Napoleon as a figure above politics who symbolically represented all the people of France. We are nearing the end of Bonaparte's political evolution, from Jacobin radical to enlightened despot. All that remains is the final step, the imperial crown, and the audacity to seize it. Before we go, I'd like to bid farewell to someone who has become a major character in our story over the last few episodes, Emmanuel Siez. He isn't technically going anywhere, but as we saw earlier in this episode, Napoleon had pretty effectively shoved him to the sidelines, and he would remain there for the rest of his life. As we saw, Siez wasn't happy about being steamrolled like this, but Napoleon bought his loyalty pretty cheaply, with a lavish estate just outside Paris. Ironically, this was a former Catholic abbey, which had been seized by the state. Perfect for a former Catholic abbot turned revolutionary. In exchange, Siez took on the role of president of the Senate in the new government, and dutifully helped Napoleon keep the rubber-stamp legislature in line. Bonaparte would eventually award him the Legion of Honor, France's highest decoration. But unlike many of the other leading Brumaire conspirators, Siez was never granted a noble title under the empire. Perhaps this was out of deference to his republican beliefs, or perhaps it was yet another snub from Bonaparte, who was in the habit of walking all over him. Still, in spite of everything, Siez remained stubbornly loyal to Napoleon to the end, even returning to the emperor's side when he escaped exile and briefly retook power in 1815. The Bourbon dynasty ensured he paid for it. After the restoration, Siez was stripped of all his honors and forced into exile. He was not able to return to France until the ripe old age of 82, after the revolution of 1830 drove the Bourbons from power once again. He lived out the last six years of his life in Paris, dying in 1836 at the age of 88. Siez has not come off very well on this show. Frankly, he was so incompetent as a politician that I get a little pang of vicarious embarrassment and frustration whenever I write about him. But I don't want to leave you with the impression that he was stupid or entirely ridiculous. He really did deserve his reputation as a great writer and thinker. It's just that his achievements in that side of his career are a bit outside the scope of this show. It's hard to square his undeniable skills as an intellectual with his absolutely dismal performance as a political leader. I think the confrontation between Bonaparte and Siez serves as a potent reminder that, while ideas do matter in politics, soaring rhetoric or elegant theories are rarely a match for raw power. Napoleon understood that, Siez did not. We'll leave things there for now. Until next time, thanks for listening. 
Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.